If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. The title of this sermon is The Cross, the Curtain, and the Confession, Part 2. Um, today's sermon, if you haven't already picked up, it is Part 2 of 2 of the Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've struggled a, a lot in knowing how to break up these two sections into multiple weeks because they really are one cohesive text. Uh, they probably should be preached together, but... That would make for a two to three hour long sermon. And so for your sake, I've decided against that. So today we'll jump back into the crucifixion, which we started last week. And to do that, I want us to see as clear as day how each step of the way Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. So let's read the second part of the text first. Mark 15 Verses 33 through 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine to put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, so... Placing the text that Jonathan read earlier with this section of text, I want us to begin by walking through a chart of every prophecy that Jesus fulfills during his passion. Uh, this chart comes from Danny Aiken's book, Exalting Jesus in Mark. So number one, Psalm 69, verse 21, says, For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Here in our text, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Psalm 22, 18. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. In our text, then they divided his clothes, casting lots for them. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was counted among the rebels. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, since he takes pleasure in him. Here in our text, 
Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They pierced my hands and my feet. Mark fifteen twenty-four. They crucified him. Amos eight nine. And in that day, this I, the, the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Psalm 21.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same thing in Mark 15.34. And finally, Isaiah 53.9 says they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, bought some fine linen and wrapped him in linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of rock. Simply reading these texts without comment, do you think God had a clear plan? Yes, he did. And Jesus was faithfully fulfilling that plan down to the smallest of details right on schedule. This was God's sovereign will. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. Every moment since Genesis 3.15 was moving toward and anticipating this moment in our text. The salvation of God's people in all times and all places hinged on this moment. Our eternal hope as Christians hinged on this moment. And as we walk through this section, I want us to continually be asking two questions. Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? So let's look back at the text. Verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I've just got to tell you, this verse is mind-blowing for so many reasons. First, and we read this earlier, it fulfills prophecy. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. To be clear, this isn't a solar eclipse. We know that the Passover was held at full moon. This is a cosmic sign of judgment and displeasure with sin. See this. If Jesus were were merely dying as a good example of being sacrificial, which many liberal theologians teach today, if he were only doing that, none of this happens. Now, Jesus is an example to us. But he's so much more. There are cosmic things happening here in this moment. 
And the heavens are letting everyone know. Literally, thousands of other crucifixions happened during this time period. But this one's unique. God wants to make sure that no one misses this fact. But there's more. Does anyone remember the Exodus story? And the the plagues leading up to the Passover? The ninth plague, right before the tenth and final, you ready for this? Was darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. This is back in the, the Exodus story. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. You remember what the tenth plague right after that was? The death of the firstborn son. The only thing that would stop that was the blood of the Passover lamb. Darkness followed by either judgment or rescue. That's exactly what happened in the Exodus. And here we are. Who is Jesus? In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul correctly calls Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. So following this cosmic darkness, our Passover lamb would shed his blood, dying in the place of sinners like you and me. For those paying attention during this time, this was unmistakable. This time, it wouldn't be firstborns in Egypt dying, but God's only begotten Son. Who is Jesus? He's the perfect Passover lamb. What did he accomplish? Our rescue from slavery to sin and death. We're only one verse in. Well, let's keep going. Verses 34 through 36. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Again, there's so much here. First, he's, he's quoting Psalm 22. A messianic psalm written about him over a thousand years before this moment. And I want to come back to Psalm 22 in just a second. But before that, I want us to address these bystanders. He's quoting Psalm 22, but they believe that he's calling for Elijah. You can see how they might think that, right? Eloi sounds a lot like Elijah. Or Eliyah. But it's actually more than that. See, in Palestine during this time, there was a popular religious belief, let's just call it a superstition, that Elijah was a kind of a patron saint for sufferers. They believed that he'd show up to help someone who was suffering. They thought Jesus was calling out for help from Elijah. 
Don't miss this. What Jesus was, was actually saying is insanely significant, as we'll see in just a second. But they missed it because they were so focused on superstition. Had they known the scriptures, they, they might have heard him correctly and understood exactly what was happening. But they didn't. So how about us? Do we know the scriptures? Or are our minds often clouded by superstitions or half-truths we've heard about the Bible? Friends, saturate yourself in God's word. So much so that when you hear superstition, you spot it. And when you hear the truth, you know it. They were so focused on superstition that their interpretation of Jesus' words couldn't have been farther from the truth. So, what was Jesus saying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just stop and acknowledge that this is intense. A lot of people try to soften these words by saying, well, he was probably quoting the whole psalm. And while it starts with these words, it ends a lot more positive with trust and praise. Maybe. But I think this misses the point. For the, the first and last time in Jesus' life, he was literally forsaken by the Father. There's no softening that. He was bearing the sin of the entire world. Take that in. As we often sing, every sin on him was laid. The sins of God's people from all times and all places were being imputed or credited to Jesus in this moment. Then he experienced the full wrath of God for those sins. Do you understand that? Jesus dying on the cross didn't just magically make God's just wrath disappear. No. He absorbed it on our behalf. And this had to happen for God to be just and good. I've explained this before, and I'm certain I will again. God is a just judge. And because of that, he must punish sin. He, he can't merely shrug it off or let it slide. If he did, he wouldn't be just or good. So, in this moment on the cross, Jesus, as our sin bearer, is taking on all of your sin and all of my sin and all of the sins of the world, thus being separated from God. Then he's experiencing the full and just amount of God's wrath for that sin. As we learned last week, this isn't just about the physical pain of the cross. Who is Jesus? He's our sin bearer and our substitute. What did he accomplish? Atonement for our sin. 
Paul notes in Galatians 3, 13 through 14, that Jesus in this moment became a curse for us. And because of that, he's forsaken in this moment. But I want us to notice something. He's still saying, my God, my God. Isn't that interesting and telling? So often in our sinful flesh, if we even feel unheard or unnoticed by God, we tend to want to abandon him or to question whether he even really exists. Not Jesus. Even in the darkest, darkest depths of his forsakenness, he clings to the Father and continues to call him his God. Jesus is so much more than an example here, but he's not less. He is an example of what it looks like to trust God as your God, regardless of your current circumstances. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy and atoning for sin as our substitute. Yet, they're still focused on superstition. Don't miss the truth when it's staring you right in the face. Let's keep going. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is astounding. Now understand this. This isn't a comment about interior decoration or temple aesthetics. This is deeply theological. Let's start again back in Exodus 26. Exodus 26, verses 31 through 34, says this. It's talking about the temple. It says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Did you catch that? The veil or the, the curtain was there as a divider in the temple to keep people out of the most holy place where the ark was. The ark represents the presence of God. The holy of holies, this room that's being described, was only entered into once a year by the high priest on the day of atonement. What was he going in there to do? To sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals to atone for the sin of God's people. And did you catch what was woven on that curtain in Exodus 26, verse 31? Cherubim. What's up with that? Again, this isn't about interior decoration, it's theological. Remember the garden? Adam and Eve sin against God. Therefore, they can no longer be in his presence. They're expelled from the garden. 
Any guess what was blocking the entrance to the garden after expulsion? Let's read Genesis 3, verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see it? This curtain separated fallen humanity from the presence of God, the holiest of places. And Jesus, Jesus in his death, tore the curtain, making a way for people to go in. Look at how the author of Hebrews says it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after, after the order of Melchizedek. Again, in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see that? Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can go in. You can draw near to God. You can have a garden relationship with him again. The curtain was torn in two. One last detail here. Did you notice Mark's description of how the curtain was torn? Look again at verse 38. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How was it torn? From top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. Do you see what Mark's showing us? Salvation is a work of God and not of man. Through his son's death on the cross, God in heaven slashed the curtain in a way that only he could. Hear this. That our good works, our good works could never tear the curtain from bottom to top. We can't save ourselves. Only God can tear the curtain from top to bottom. And that's great news. We can never be good enough on our own to enter the Holy of Holies, to be in the presence of God, to have relationship with Him. But God has made a way. We have access through Christ. The veil is torn in two. So who is Jesus? He's the high priest. What did he accomplish? He gave us access to God's holy presence. Now, we've noted that before Jesus' last breath, that there were scoffers and mockers and those who physically abused him. But after his death, notice this, things begin to change in the book of Mark. 
We've already seen God's positive reaction with tearing of the curtain. But there's more to come. Look at verse 39. It says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. First of all, let's ask the question, what does the centurion mean when he says, in this way, he breathed his last? Verse 37 clues us in. It says that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. We know from the other Gospels that this loud cry was the cry of, it is finished. And I want us to pause here and consider two truths. First, this centurion, just, just think about him for a moment. He's most lock, likely seen hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions. I think that we sometimes wrongfully assume that Jesus' crucifixion was the only one that ever happened. But that's not the case. In 4 BC alone, the Roman general Varus crucified 2,000 Jews one year alone. Tens of thousands of people were crucified during this period of Roman history. But this one, this one, again, was unique. It drew a response from this centurion in a way that other crucifixions didn't. The second truth that I want us to see is this, this centurion has most likely witnessed the entire thing from start to finish. He saw Jesus remain silent. He saw him beaten, spit on, scourged. He saw him reviled. He saw one of the thieves converted. He saw the sky turn dark for three hours. He heard Jesus quoting Psalm 22. All of that leads up to Jesus crying out, It is finished! The work is done forever! There's, there's nothing more to do. The centurion had never witnessed anything like this before. Do you remember the, the very first verse in the book of Mark? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is how the book started. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's thesis statement, so to speak. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's been driving us to this place from the very beginning. He's showed us evidence after evidence after evidence to make his case. And here we are, on the lips of a Roman centurion, the confession that truly this man was the Son of God. It's almost as if Mark is inviting his readers and us to make this confession our own. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. Jesus' death clearly revealed who he is. So let's ask the question, who do you believe that he is? It's the most important question in the entire universe. Who do you believe that he is? How you answer that question will define who you are. 
how you answer that question matters for eternity. Is his life one of superstition? Is he just a good man? Mark hasn't left us with either of those options. He's Savior and Lord. Romans 10, 9-11 that we read earlier says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, first, we're elated that you're here and you're always welcome. But I want to take the next couple minutes just to speak directly to you. The Bible and human experience teach us that we live in a broken world. There's dysfunction, brokenness all around us. This is the result of sin. And the truth is that sin isn't an out there problem. It's in here. It's in every single one of us, myself included. From the the very beginning of creation, God tells us the truth about this. The penalty for sin which is in each of us, is death. You deserve death. I deserve death. We all deserve death for sinning against a holy and righteous God. Eternal damnation would be justice for each and every one of us. That's true. But he made a way for us to be free, for us to be clean, for us to be made right with him. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It's the most glorious and good news in the entire world. As we heard earlier, you can't make yourself right or good. But God can. The first words of Jesus in the book of Mark that we read earlier are these. He's the son of God. Then he continues on. These are the first words that are on Jesus' lips in the book of Mark. Mark 1.15. He shows up on the scene. This is what he says. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. That's his call to us. And that's my invitation to you this morning. Confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. Trust Him and Him alone to save you. Rejoice and rest in your new life. Let's pray.